From KYW News Radio, the Delaware Valley's news authority, this is Flashpoint. What's igniting debate online and in your community? I'm KYW Community Affairs reporter Cherry Gregg, and we'll run through the big issues of the week that are getting folks hot under the collar. Coming up on this podcast. An undocumented mother of four takes refuge in a historic North Philadelphia church. She and her family had an imminent deportation order, and if they fled, their lives would be in imminent danger. More groups step up to open their doors, but what is sanctuary and is it legal? Weighing the risk of being prosecuted on the one hand versus acting out of conviction. Experts weigh in. Systematic racism, inequality, and rights violations require Big solutions. Matters to lots of people, thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people. The little law firm making headlines by taking on some of the major legal challenges plaguing our city. Hey guys, listen up. When you're done with the show, would you do me a favor? Please provide a review and rate this podcast. And feel free to provide feedback often. We need reviews to push us to the top. Now back to the show. Thanks all. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. The focus is the recent uptick in the number of immigrants seeking sanctuary. Since President Donald Trump signed an executive order that beefs up immigration law enforcement, undocumented individuals facing imminent deportation are so afraid many feel sanctuary is their only option. I cannot go back. That's Carmela Hernandez, an undocumented mother of four. She explained through an interpreter that she fled Mexico in 2015 after three of her family members were murdered by drug gangs. She fled to America asking for asylum. When her petition was denied, the family of five went into sanctuary at the Church of the Advocate in North Philadelphia this week, Pastor Renee McKenzie. Perhaps that's against the law of the federal government or the state government, but it's not against the law of God. The Hernandezes will live inside of a classroom connected to the church while they appeal the decision, which could take months or even years. So what is sanctuary and why churches? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Hasmin Delgado, who works with the New Sanctuary Movement of Philadelphia, a grassroots organization that builds bridges across faith and ethnicity lines to help immigrant communities. We also have David Binion, an immigration lawyer who represents Carmela Hernandez and her four children in their asylum case. On remote, we have Reverend Robin Heineke, pastor of Arch Street United Methodist Church, which has opened its doors to undocumented immigrants in the past. And finally, we have Golnez Fakimi, an immigrant rights lawyer for the ACLU of Pennsylvania. Everyone, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. First of all, I just want to talk about sanctuary, what it is and why individuals choose churches. I want to start with Golnez, provide us an overarching understanding of this issue. With respect to ICE's own policies, at least since 2011, uh, it considers certain locations to be sensitive locations where it won't uh, intrude to enforce the immigration laws unless there's some sort of emergency or imminent threat or prior approval is sought. And so um, among the, the designated sensitive locations, churches are included. Hasmin, I know new sanctuary movement sort of connects people with churches, what type of individuals kind of fit the bill and would say, okay, 
this is a, a case where sanctuary is needed. Mm-hmm. We do work with uh, 27 member congregations, half mm-hmm. of them immigrant-led, half of them allied. And all of these congregations actually have a commitment to put their values of welcoming, love, and radical hospitality into action. Our view of sanctuary is one is one that is expansive, one that uh, builds a city with uh, welcoming policies that do not discriminate against people based on their immigration status. And so when somebody seeks sanctuary in a specific church, it's a decision that we collectively we put a lot of thought into. Carmela came to our office. She had an she and her family had an imminent deportation order, and if they fled, their lives would be in imminent danger. As a group, and with Carmela involved, the way that New Sanctuary Movement practices sanctuary when in a church, it is part of a public campaign, and it is shedding light on the injustices that Carmela's fa- family is facing, but also in the injustices plaguing the immigration justice system. And so, uh, as Golnaz uh, referred uh, or mentioned, um, it is not a hiding out, but rather a shedding light on and, yeah. uh, and a coming out into the light into the light of the church, into the light of a community that will embrace her and support with her and, um, and stand shoulder to shoulder with her on this, um, in this struggle. I want to go to Reverend Heineke Javier Flores, spent over a year living inside the Arch Street United Methodist Church. Why did the church decide to take him in? Javier was with us for 11 months. The church is a member church of the New Sanctuary Movement. We made a commitment to be in solidarity with immigrants who were seeking justice in a variety of ways. When we were approached by Juntos, another immigrant rights organization, asking us to provide sanctuary, and because of our longstanding commitment, when we met with Javier and his family and his attorney, the story was so compelling, he was going to be deported even before his case. Uh, for a U visa could even have a chance to be heard. Yeah. Uh, so we opened our doors for, for justice. Yeah, and Javier had been attacked, uh, helped police find his attacker, and had a case for a U visa that initially was denied. And by him going into sanctuary after 11 months, he was he won his case and he was able to stay in America rightfully. In that case, sanctuary worked. David, you represent um, Carmela, who just went into sanctuary this week, and she has an asylum case. And she is in sanctuary at the Church of the Advocate in North Philadelphia. Her case is similar to Javier's in the sense that she still has an active case pending on appeal at federal court. But the courts and the government's position is that she needs to go back to Mexico and wait the outcome of her appeal which makes no sense at all. It's not an easy decision to say that you're going to go into sanctuary, right? Not at all. It's just one step short of actually being in detention. But there are important differences in that she has the support and the security of the church and of the community of New Sanctuary Movement. She has access to me as her attorney, which often there are barriers to counsel when somebody is detained. And she would and her children almost certainly be immediately deported if she were to be detained by ICE at this point. It is a form of sanctuary, and we're hopeful that, similar to in Javier's and others' cases, that it will provide the space necessary for her legal case to unfold, for her to muster uh, public support, and uh, find a way for her to stay here permanently.
has mean like this is a life or death situation and from her point of view. Definitely. She's from Guerrero, Mexico, a region uh, that has been completely torn apart by the drug wars. The tentacles of organized crime reached her family. Uh, Her family members were taxi drivers and were extorted. And because they didn't give in money, they were uh, murdered. She was threatened with a similar fate as well. And she came to the U.S. out of love for her family. And she's in sanctuary out of love for her family as well. Isn't offering sanctuary to someone who is under an imminent deportation order helping someone break the law? I think it's a fair question, and I I don't know that it has a simple answer. What I can tell you is that there is a federal law on the books on the basis of which if the government, the federal government, were to want to take that kind of aggressive approach, it might use that law to try to prosecute um, a, a church official under these circumstances. But there may be a defense or a claim because it conflicts with free exercise of religion. Putting the law to one side from a public policy perspective, perspective, I think it would spark quite a lot of moral outrage, hopefully public outrage. Reverend Hanukkah, was this a thought in your mind when you opened your doors to Javier? We were aware that there were risks, but we never hesitated. We were coming at this from the point of view of exercising our faith. And so we were exercising our sacred responsibility to take that risk and to stand in solidarity with Javier and in this case with the Church of the Advocate with Carmelo. Churches are a place that ICE as a policy uh, would not go into but what about an individual's home? If people started opening up their homes does it change the analysis? There's a balancing that people who are sympathetic and who want to offer personal sanctuary in their homes need to do for themselves. On the one hand, there may be legal risk if their efforts come to light and if the federal authorities are keen on uh, taking an aggressive view of the law and going after such folks. Um, There may be defenses available, even under those circumstances, but it's a matter of weighing the risk of being prosecuted on the one hand versus acting out of conviction and trying to promote justice and acting on a moral impulse on the other hand. Um, And, you know, those are decisions that people have to make for themselves. And what about you, um, Hasmin? Yeah, I think it's important to create and fight for the conditions that make that kind of scenario impossible. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, A scenario in which people have to essentially take refuge in other people's homes. I think one way to think about sanctuary in a more expansive way is by centering the autonomy and the agency of immigrants. Immigrants want to live wherever we feel comfortable. We want to live among our communities. We want to work and we want to play. We want to worship where we want. We want to live on our regular lives. Imagining a, a scenario in which you know there are uh, hundreds of thousands of people living in churches just seems like a, ver- a, a scenario that we can avoid if we start actually doing the hard work right now mm-hmm. by embracing Carmela's case, but, mm-hmm. but also by fighting for policies that uh, restrict the collaboration between law enforcement agencies and ICE, for instance, and also uh, to push for policies at a national level that allow people to live uh, freely in the places where they have called home for a long time. Yeah, and I, I'm sure all of you have heard of the case of nine-year-old Rosa Maria Hernandez, a young girl who has cerebral palsy. She was detained by ICE for her undocumented status soon after getting surgery. She was then later released. How does this type of a story 
where agents followed this young girl into a hospital, a place that they typically don't go in. But they followed this girl there, waited for her after she got surgery. And does that sort of make, give you pause? It, it was outrageous what they did. And it's not the only case, unfortunately, especially along the southern border. But the outcome of Rosa's case in particular so far gives me some cause for hope. Uh, there was a lot of publicity and public outrage expressed and there was some very solid community organizing and legal advocacy and Rosa has now been released to her family. We can take that model and and apply it to sanctuary and apply it to other types of cases where public support and a public campaign can be very important in informing the public about what's going on, getting public support. And we see time after time, then ICE and the government often back down under that public outrage. Reverend Heineke, as we wrap this up, churches are on the front lines here. What needs to change so we can move this conversation forward? You know, what's beautiful to me about what's going on with the Church of the Advocate and Carmela and her family is people of color standing in solidarity with each other against this white supremacist agenda that's weaponized, really, a broken immigration system to further create vulnerabilities for black and brown people, and especially immigrants. I think there's a lot of things people can do. Take the risk of addressing racism in your own life and in the life of those around you, because that's really at the root of this. I don't, I don't know that the solutions are going to be, you know, technical, legal solutions. They're, they're going to be about building movements and um, kind of holding up a mirror to what's wrong and, and why. David? As the Reverend mentioned, Javier was in sanctuary for 11 months, and we hope that Carmela and her children don't have to stay that long. But we don't know it's day by day. I'm really struck by her uh, courage and her children's courage in doing this brave act. And she really was the instigator in seeking out help. So I think it's people like Carmela standing up for themselves and for their own unacknowledged human rights to live in safety, to be with their families, and what comes down to a human right to migrate and remain that this legal system has not yet recognized and needs Mm -hmm. to catch up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And last word um, to you, because I know individuals reach out to you all Thanks to the organizing efforts of NSM and Juntos and other uh, immigrant rights organizations, the city of Philadelphia prides itself on being a sanctuary city. And we want to push that forward by creating policies that restrict collaboration between criminal agencies and ICE, by having uh, policies that uh, embrace people of color and that turn their backs away from criminalization of our communities, the incarceration and deportation of our communities, uh, immigrant communities and people of color. Thank you to Hasmin Delgado, David Benyon, uh, Reverend Robin Heineke, and finally to Goldnaz Fakimi for talking about this flashpoint in the news. Next up, they're a tiny civil rights law firm taking on some of the biggest challenges of a generation. It would mean that people's voices would be heard. For ways the Public Interest Law Center is breaking barriers. This is Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg, and one of the issues that get Philly residents hot under the collar is injustice, especially on a massive scale. In comes the Public Interest Law Center, a group of lawyers that work specifically to identify and correct societal systems that result in inequality or trample on human and civil rights. And this year, the organization has been busy filing class action lawsuits 
that could have a major impact in our area. With me in the studio to discuss the headline-catching work is Pilk Executive Director Jennifer Clark. Jennifer, welcome to Flashpoint. Thanks, Terry. I'm really glad to be here. Let's talk about some of the key cases that you're working on right now. My small but mighty bunch of lawyers (laughs) is working on a lawsuit against the state for failing to fund public education, both in Philadelphia and around the Commonwealth. We are also getting ready to have a trial this month about the political gerrymandering. That is the way that they drew those crazy lines for our congressional districts. We have an argument in the Third Circuit this month about employers discriminating against people with criminal records. And we're also in landlord-tenant court fighting for the rights of tenants against landlords who ignore the laws. For people who have never heard of uh, Pilk, tell us a little bit of the history and why you do what you do. We are lawyers. We're a small law firm, a civil rights law firm. We started during the civil rights era. In the early 60s, President Kennedy looked around and said, why are the lawyers in this country not involved in civil rights? And what happened then was lawyers around the country formed these committees. They called them Lawyers' Committees for Civil Rights Under Law. And our committee, the Philadelphia Committee, was formed in 1969. And we then evolved from the Lawyers' Committee that was formed in 69, almost 50 years ago. How do you choose your cases? Because the cases you all tend to take are like class actions, big deals, stuff that impacts a lot of folk. That's the hardest thing we have to do. When people come to us, the first question we ask is, is there a legal solution? Because sometimes it's It's more of a political activism or it's lobbying. We look at how important it is to people. For example, public education, that's something that everybody cares about. We look at how many people are affected. If it's just one person, we're not going to be able to handle it. We look at something that matters to lots of people, thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people. Sometimes there's laws on the books that people aren't using. And then sometimes the laws are just... Sometimes they're bad laws. A few years ago, we had a photo ID law in Pennsylvania. I remember that. That's how I I got to know Jenny over here. Right. That's how we met. That was a bad law. All estimates were in the hundreds of thousands of people who didn't have the ID they needed. We won. Yeah. On the nick of time. (laughs) We did. We won. And we were... Then one of the few places where the, that law, that kind of law, had been struck down. A lot of other states, they, didn't, they weren't able to strike it down. So you all are dealing with a case that deals with redistricting. Explain the significance of this and how impactful this case is on how we vote. This is a problem, actually, around the country. It's a Democratic and a Republican problem. If one party's in charge, that party then gets to draw the lines about where the congressional districts are. Mm. And what happened in 2011 was the Republicans were in charge And even though we have about 50-50 split in the state, Democratic-Republican, the Republicans drew those lines so that they get 13 congressional seats and the Democrats only get five. And what that means is that people feel like my vote doesn't count. And the way that they did this is using data to sort of draw the lines. Republicans who were in charge of drawing this map carefully, carefully crafted it so that they would sprinkle out Democrats in Republican districts. So they're, so the Democrats who are sprinkled through de- de- Republican districts, would their vote wouldn't matter. Or they packed lots and lots of Democrats together in a district. 
so that they would have a supermajority. You all filed a class action, took that on. What would a win mean for the average voter? A win would mean that there would be a new map drawn. And hopefully that new map would be a lot closer to what we actually have, which is a 50-50 split Democratic-Republican in Pennsylvania. So it would mean that people's voices would be heard. Another big case, and we and everybody knows that the SRC recently voted to uh, dissolve itself. Um, talk about the case that you all are involved in, specifically related to education funding. At the end of the day, the big problem with public education is we don't put enough money into it as a state. You can fight about whether people are misusing money or whatever, but if you don't have enough money in the system— you can't have enough teachers. You can't fix up your buildings. You can't have foreign languages. That's the problem in Pennsylvania. Our lawsuit is under the state constitution mm. against the legislature, and we are saying your system of funding public education is completely irrational because it doesn't. you don't think about how much money this costs. You just throw a little bit of money, and it's not enough money. That is a legal theory that people have used in other states successfully. And now we are using it in Pennsylvania. Mayor Jim Kenney said, look, we're going to take our schools back. Philadelphia is going to come up with the cash. We're going to make sure that we can afford this. What would a win in this case mean for parents who have kids in public schools? At the end of the day, the legislature would have to come up with more revenue statewide to go into all of our schools. One of the issues I cover a lot is reentry. There's a stigma associated with a criminal past. You all, Public Interest Law Center, you're working to change it. People need to have jobs and people want to have jobs. So this is one of those places where we have a really good law in Pennsylvania. Mm. It's called the Criminal History Record Information Act. And that law says that a company can't just bar you from employment if you have a criminal history. And it certainly can't bar you if you only have an arrest or you have um, um, uh, a disposition that allows you to work off your um, work off your time. But no one knows about this law. What we do is we represent people who have been turned away and said, no, we don't hire people with records, and we sue the companies. Usually what happens is that we'll write a complaint against the company, we'll send it to the company's lawyers, and we'll say, look, here's what the law says. We're going to sue you in a week. Nine times out of 10, the company's lawyers will look at it and say, oh, they didn't realize it. Or in one case, they'd already changed their policy just a few months earlier. It's a really important way of letting companies know that they have a responsibility not to discriminate against people with criminal records. If the crime Mm. is related to the job, then the employer is certainly can turn the person away. But they have to ask themselves that question. They have to say, is this crime really related to this job? They can't just say, we don't hire people with records. Folks don't realize if you have a criminal past, sometimes you can't get housing. Sometimes you, you can't get jobs. Sometimes you can't get certain benefits. There's a lot of things, you know, when you have a criminal past, you can be barred from. And of course, this is also a race problem. Yes. So there's a lot of race discrimination involved in how people are charged in the first place. That means that the black person is more likely to have a record in the first place, which means then it's harder for that person to get a job. Really, at the end of the day, why we're taking on this this problem, because it's not just 
an employment problem, but at the end of the day, it's structural racism too. And the last thing I want to talk to, and we'll talk about this quickly, is when you're a tenant and you're going against the landlord, you're there by yourself a lot of times. 95% of the people who are there are not represented, the tenants that is. Most of the landlords are represented. There are 25,000 evictions a year. So we are talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of people who go into court without a lawyer. Under that circumstance, there's no real incentive or there's no one watching to make sure that the landlords are following the law. So, for example, a landlord isn't allowed to evict someone or even collect rent if they're if the property is unfit for human habitation. They're just not allowed to. But there's no one checking. So landlords routinely go into court with all kinds of outstanding violations, sewage, no heat, no water, to evict their tenants when even when they're not allowed to. Yeah. So what we're doing is we are helping tenants get out of the eviction process, and then we're suing the landlords. Flipping or it. <laughs> or we're suing their lawyers, um, which doesn't make us popular, but it's making the landlords and the lawyers think twice about violating the law. And uh, I just want to give people uh, a way to reach out to you. The way to contact us is through our website, www.pubintlaw.org. But the other thing is people actually should go to community legal services, and they are the ones who will send people to us. Keep up the excellent work. So thank you so much. Well, thank you, Terry. I really appreciate it. Next up, they're the generation keeping alive the legacy of a South Philadelphia girl turned 20th century international music sensation. You are going to be in the holiday spirit. is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. We here at KYW are all about community, and this week it's about the National Marion Anderson Museum. The nonprofit works to keep the musical legacy of the barrier-breaking contralto alive. That's some of the Marian Anderson scholars at rehearsal this week getting ready for the holiday season and an upcoming performance. With me in the KYW studios is Jillian Patricia Pirtle, a soprano and historian who runs the museum. So tell us all about it. Welcome to the KYW studios. Thank you for having me, Cherry. For those individuals who have been living under a rock, please ex- tell them quickly who Marian Anderson is. Marian Anderson was one of the greatest living legends of the 20th century. She was the first successful African-American classical and opera artist in the United States with extreme popularity and success in Europe and overseas. Now, the holidays was one of Marian Anderson's favorite time of the years. How many holiday albums did she do? About four in total. Not only were they uh, alone singular albums, but also albums featured with orchestras as well as albums featured with other artists, including Julie Andrews, who knew that she did an album with her as well. It's quite remarkable. What do you think are some of her most memorable tunes from those albums? 
O Come All Ye Faithful, Silent Night, and the number one hit, which was the equivalence of our platinum album today, is Ave Maria. When Marian Anderson premiered that on CBS on Christmas Eve for the whole nation to see, the night she sung Ave Maria, it wasn't just a church classic. It became a popular number one platinum hit, and that is uh, one of the greatest hits that was sold. Part of what you all will be doing to embrace Marian's great legacy is producing a concert. Every year, we have the Christmas Spectacular concert where we feature Marion's favorites. We do a lot of classical pieces. This year, we're featuring the John Rutter Magnificat. We're going to be getting into the favorite holiday Negro spirituals. We're going to do the beautiful show tune favorites and then the wonderful modern classic favorites that everybody knows and loves. The Christmas song, chestnuts roasting on an open fire, all of the great things that people love to hear. Yeah, and I had the pleasure last year of being the narrator of some of the stories that lead into each of the the songs. And it was so much fun. You felt like Christmas was coming when you sat in this concert. If you're not in the Christmas spirit, when you come to Carol's in the City Christmas Spectacular, you are going to be in the holiday spirit. When is the concert and how can people get tickets? It's going to be on December 23rd at the Historic Ethical Society Theater in Rittenhouse Square, 1906 Rittenhouse Square in Center City, Philadelphia. The curtain is at 4 p.m. All those who want tickets, call the National Marian Anderson Museum office at 215-779-4219. It's all about Christmas. It's all about celebrating a historical woman, um, African-American woman, who's a straight Philly girl. Everything about Marion was humble and gracious and kind and Philadelphia. And she loved her city. When she was home in Philadelphia, would stand on her porch, wave to the neighbors, talk to people, shake hands. That's who Marion was. She was a Philadelphia lady, the epitome of grace and elegance. And I just want to say, Jillian has a beautiful voice and she will be performing, I'm assuming. I will. I will and- be performing with the other scholar artists and they are exceptional. We have beautiful sopranos like Regina Ann Smith, Carolyn Coleman, one of our brand new inductees who's coming all the way from Mississippi to perform with us. We have wonderful uh, tenors such as Derek Anthony Wilson, baritones such as Stephen Brown, uh, Victor Rodriguez, Achilles Inverso, uh, Rosemary Thyberg, and we cannot forget who's going to be leading the helm of our orchestra, our uh, new inductee maestro Wesley Broadnecks, Dr. Broadnecks, exceptional conductor, incredible artist, has traveled the world and he is a current professor at Drexel University so this is a show that's just outrageous you can't miss it it just warms my heart and keep going because this money raised from these tickets keeps Marian Anderson's uh, legacy alive absolutely all of the money that is raised from ticket sales and promotions goes right to the Marian Anderson Museum to keep the house going all year long with our special exhibitions we change the exhibits every year the special programming that we have we have a season of shows and it supports the Marian Anderson Scholar Artist Program that was Marian Anderson's legacy that's our founder's legacy Lady Blanche Burton Lyles and we as the younger generation are pushing it forward and keeping it alive Wonderful. December 23rd, beginning at 4 o'clock p.m. at the Ethical Society in Rittenhouse Square. You can call 215-779-4219 at the Marian Anderson Museum for more details. Thank you so much, Jillian, Patricia Pirtle, for coming into the KYW studios. Thank you for always having us. Well, that's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow KYW News Radio on Twitter and let us know what you think by using the hashtag Flashpoint. 
You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. You can subscribe to the show by using the Radio.com app or iTunes or whatever platform you use to get your podcast. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As historian Oscar Hanlon once said, once I thought to write a history of immigrants in America, then I discovered that the immigrants were American history. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.